Costume Station Zero. This is Bob Mitch, and I'm here with part two of three of my chat with Mr. Steve Ricks, the Doctor's Tailor, talking tailoring technique and Doctor's attire. After this interview, I'll be talking to Nicole Carlson about Femme Doctor cosplay and the Fifth Doctor, as this is all part of our countdown to Gallifrey One. Gallifrey One, of course, is a a premier Doctor Who convention, the largest in the North American continent, and uh, for those listening who are attending, uh, I hope to see you there. It'll be a great time. It's just as social as it is the general fan experience. For those who can attend, well, I'll report as much as I can about it because it's pretty awesome. Uh, I will be there uh, in my new Tom Baker duds. Colin Baker Duds, and a brand new spanking Zygon, which would be pretty awesome. I'm already blogging about that, and uh, we'll post the full links once all the entries are up, but uh, you can see the entire build process Paul Salamoff and I have been doing on that. Also, uh, for those attending late Saturday night, um, uh, the gang and I have done a full comedy show uh, along the same lines of the skits for any previous attendees who might remember in the masquerade stuff like The Brigadier, The Unsung Hero, Androids, Three Generations of a Cyberman, uh, The Companion Game, etc., etc. You're going to get more of the same. Uh, a lot more. So, uh, if you have the time, Program D, 11.30, 12 midnight-ish. Uh, it'll be time approximate after the masquerade. Hope to see you there. Uh, we're also going to have June Hudson in person doing a special customer's reception. Uh, should be a lot of fun to hear from her and uh, hear about what it was like costuming on the classic series. So anyways, with all that said, without further ado, Steve Ricks and I will pick up where we left off. So, stick around. And here we go. <laughs> Um, so for people looking for these, uh, basically just search for them on eBay. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, um, I've seen quite a few sets of these books come up since. Um, if you look for uh, Taylor's Cutter's Guide, stuff mm-hmm. like that, um, mm-hmm. you can find it. But there's there's a particular free volume set. Um, it's often there's there's a there was a, a version printed in the 1920s 30s which was a red bound set and then it was reprinted in the 1950s um in like a dark blue uh binding um there's just a few differences between the two but uh all of those patterns are in there and it's got an enormous range of patterns for male and female costumes um you know all sorts of um uh sort of military clothes um there's sort of uh stuff for priests hmm. um there's basic frock coats there's lots of sort of shooting jackets um plus fours riding jackets all that type of stuff um mm-hmm. it's all that type of period stuff all the sort of thing that you'd see on downton abbey right 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 you know? mm-hmm. it's all that type of stuff um and it's th- they, these are the basic building blocks to then take on and 
make into these costumes. Because essentially a lot of the Doctor's wardrobe is historically based. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And on, on those early days, I think um, a lot of those costumes were literally just taken out of um, the archives of Angels or Bermans and Nathans. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think for a minute that uh, um, William Hartnell's costume was necessarily sort of bespoke made for him. I'm sure it was just off off the rack, um, like a costume store that told oh, let's let's just find a frock coat, let's just find a pair of tweed trousers. Um, I don't think in those days that it was sort of uh, particularly handmade for him. Um, and I think possibly that would go on to Patrick Troughton. No, I think they possibly added those big pockets on the outside of the coat. It was maybe a, a frock coat that was sort of adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was only really when John Pertwee came in that they then started making stuff for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used his own tailor. He had his own tailor, which was a Savile Row tailor. Mm. Um, it's a company that I forget the name of it now, but it's a company that is still going, which is actually on Savile Row, and that's where a lot of his smoking jackets were made. Um, when the there was a purple smoking jacket, double-breasted one that he wore in Planet of the Daleks, right. that was not long ago sold off of auction, and you could see the label inside there, and it was Savile Row. So or, that's you know that 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 was when that 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 type of cut started to really sort of come in that the, the, the Use of a Savaro Taylor mm-hmm. on on the actual costume sort of sort of uh, came about, right? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I've heard and have come to understand as well. And it's it makes you wonder if somewhere in the yeah the back warehouse there at Angels, if Troughton's coat or Hartnell's coat or any of their costumes have survived. Although uh, identifying them now would be probably next to impossible. But uh, yes, but um, you've got to remember that. Uh, Things like Obi Wan Kenobi's cape had, had gone missing for many years, mm-hmm. and a few years ago they had a big clear out at Angels, and they found this um, monk's cape, which was just the same as all the others, mm-hmm. but it had it had um, Alec Guinness's name in it, and they realised that this was the one that he had worn in Star Wars, <laughs> and it sold at auction, and it got an enormous price for it. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, but these things can sometimes just go back into the clothing racks and just get completely lost mm. they get lost to all the other frock coats all the other tweed trousers that are there mm-hmm. so yes it could well be that some of those costumes are still there mm-hmm. it's just finding them identifying them and and sort of actually sort of having some form of background story to them exactly as always um, so back to the the tenant coat because that that was sort of the first thing that really kicked this this whole thing off uh, yeah. and you you say that there's there's all these details which I mean even at a glance um, I did notice a lot of that that interesting venting in the back that little triangle um, stitching you know at the waist yeah and so yeah. on um, so it sounds like you you were disappointed in the one from China and I think a lot of people were um, and you said I'm going to raise the game and, and do this again and now your coats are pretty much considered the gold standard so how, how just talk me through the, the evolution and also what what version of the coat are you on now okay um, I think I was looking at the coat from a point of view of yeah how, how, how was this coat made mm-hmm. and there were certain details about it as you say particularly the the way the back is cut, the way it has the 
the button vent, mm-hmm. which I wasn't aware of when I first started making my coats. I wasn't aware. I didn't know that it had this button vent at the back. I think it was only one particular episode um, that I suddenly noticed that the coat flared open and there was this row of buttons down on the inside edge of the back. Oh, what's that? Uh-huh. So um, I started like looking at you know sort of freeze framing the DVD. You know, the and now at long last we actually had sort of DVDs and decent uh-huh. reference material. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you start looking around, you start finding reference material for it. But I think it was only it was really when they had um, the latest exhibition um, at Earl's Court, uh, and the coat was on display there. And it just so happened that the the advertising agency I was telling you about that I worked out where I got laid off mm-hmm. that was literally half a mile down the road. Mm. So um, a couple of times. I, on my lunch hour, was able to go to the exhibition. It was like nine pounds to get in. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll go along. I can have a look at the coat and sort of looked at it a bit more closely. I took along fabric swatches to try to compare it to it and see mm-hmm. if I could work out what colour this coat was. And yes, I, you could start to look at it a little bit more in depth and realise subtle things like the, the darts on the back of the coat, once they're stitched, they're then top-stitched so that they're held a lot flatter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started putting those type of details into my coats. Um, and I think it was a little bit later that uh, I found the the way that interior pocket's done with the orange yeah. silk flashing along the welt there. Um, I managed to sort of get that a little bit more accurate. So, But every time, yes, I was always trying to move forward. I was always trying to improve how I was, how I was making the coat. So, yeah, um, it was constant sort of studying looking um working out how things had actually been done because it's quite an interesting i find it quite an interesting coat because the front of it is very loose it does hang very 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 loosely from right from the shoulders down to the hem Mm -hmm. when you look at the back of the coat it's very tightly fitted it really cuts in at the waist with all these darts and then flares out so the front of the coat is very loose the back of the coat is very fitted mm-hmm. and i've noticed that when other people have tried to make coats they've either gone really fitted and ended up with a coat that is like um really quite sort of uh, constricting or they've gone really loose and they've ended up with like almost like a cape mm-hmm. and no it's been it's very very difficult to get the front loose and the back tight and it's something which even even I struggled with. Once you start making a coat up, you realise, oh, this is not as straightforward as you think. Hmm. Um, it's easy enough just to make the coat, sure, but to get the back so that it cuts in nice and tight and fitted, but you get the front hangs nice and loose. It's 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 quite difficult. It's not as straightforward as as you, as you might first might think. Um, so to try to achieve that has been an interesting challenge, um, and. The details of the outer pockets, the way the pocket flap isn't part of the pocket. It's got like a welted pocket and then the flap is set mm-hmm. above it, mm-hmm. which is quite odd. Um, it took a little while to work that out and how to and how to do that. Um, and someone sent me a link when, when I was making them a coat and said, oh, how about using this lining? And they found a lining, which was a self-stripe. Um, midnight blue lining mm-hmm. and it was from B Blacks in Los Angeles oh yeah know them well so what I ended up doing was I was buying um, 
sort of 30, 40, 40 yards of this fabric from B Blacks and importing it from Los Angeles. And they were buying it from Italy. <laughs> so this fabric was being made in Italy, being shipped to the States and then coming way back to me. But then suddenly they, I went to reorder it and they said, oh no, it's been sort of discontinued. Mm -hmm. um, and the mill aren't going to be making any more. I was like, oh no. I think, well, I can't go back to just a plain blue lining. Mm -hmm. um, I've done coats with self-stripe lining, so I can't not have a self-stripe. And I was looking around, desperately trying to find somewhere to, to purchase a self-stripe lining from. I just couldn't find anywhere. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to sort of take the plunge here. And I did some online searching around, and I found myself a mill in China. Mm -hmm. And I actually liaised directly with a mill in China and sent them the basic instructions on how this double self-stripe lining should be made. And I actually sort of commissioned this mill to make me this self-stripe lining. So what I, what I, I currently use now is... A lining which is a pretty good replica of the exact lining that was in the original coat mm -hmm. and having spoken to Louise Page mm -hmm. that lining came from Angels and because Angels have got their own in-house costume making department obviously mm -hmm. and they've got their own fabrics and she had gone in there and she'd just chosen a nice lining fabric to use on this coat but it was just one bolt of fabric and she doesn't she she did, she never knew whether it was something that had been woven that year or something that had been sitting on their shelf for 20 years. Mm. So it was a very limited supply. And there was only enough to make um, the half dozen coats that they ever did make for the program, and that was the end of it. Um, so it was quite an unusual fabric that she chose. Uh, and it's been fun getting it re rewoven. Um, and we did actually have the chance to compare a swatch of the fabric that I'd done with an, uh, an original swatch of that that uh, Louise Page had of the original lining fabric, mm -hmm. and it was it was ninety nine percent there. I was pretty happy with how it came out. Awesome! Um, so it was really it was really cool to actually see how, how how close I'd managed to get it, just based on photographs that had been taken of the swatch book when she was at Gallifrey. Oh and, yeah. And, and then being able to just pass that on to uh, the fabric mill in China and, and, and get it woven up. So yes, every time I've always tried to move forward, never never wanted to take a step back on it. Um, and even down to the buttons on it, um, I've realised quite early on that the buttons weren't a standard one inch, twenty five mil diameter button. They are just slightly bigger. Mm -hmm. So I spent quite a long time trying to track down buttons that were. 28 millimeters in diameter rather than 25 mm -hmm. um, and it makes an enormous difference where I think one of my early coats I'd finished the coat and I'd put one inch buttons on it mm -hmm. and I'd sort of step back to him and thought ah oh, my coat's finished and I looked and I thought something's not right there and I realized that the buttons were just slightly too small mm -hmm. and when I'd found my 28 mil buttons and put those on the coat instead I thought oh yeah that's that's the sort of difference that it needed it just needed that very subtle change of size uh, it's just amazing how those little tiny little details all come together to make the sort of finished thing completely it's amazing how you're totally right you can get just about there and all it takes is that one little button change or one little trim or one little i don't know zipper you know that just yeah yeah you just need that last little detail to dial in yeah, yeah. 
and 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 now I, I've um, when I come to make a coat, uh, I hadn't made one for a, a while, and I came to make a coat recently, and I suddenly realised, oh, the way that I've been making these coats um, was fine; it was all great. But now, because the way I do my tailoring, mm-hmm. I realised I couldn't go back and make that coat the way I used to make it. Mm-hmm. So um, I used to just interface the front with um, calico before, but now I'm, I, I'm now using horsehair interface in there and again I'm pad stitching the lapels which is something that I, I, I'd never used to do mm-hmm. um, but I, I, the, the way I do the collars now is something where when I when I make a collar it just comes together that was the one piece of costume making that was always a big grey area and puzzle to me how to make a collar work mm-hmm. and it was always a slightly sort of um, hit and miss sometimes it would go in perfect sometimes it wouldn't go in as well but since I've learned new hand tailoring skills, you realize how to make a collar and how to do it so that it goes in right first time. And the way I used to do collars on tenon coats is completely different to how I do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 almost, I could not bring myself to make it the way I used to make it mm-hmm. because I just come to it now and think, oh, this is how I do my work. Um, so it's been quite funny recently in the last year to come back to have to make a new tenon coat and realise I can't make it the way I used to make it. It's got to be done in this new style, in this new um, sort of uh, construction method. And the results are, are quite different. It's amazing how when you finish a coat, the the sort of the sort of uh, collar and lapels drape just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It just fits a little bit better. Um, and it just sort of hangs and flows a lot better. Uh, and it's these little subtleties of how the construction is done inside which make all the difference. Uh, and that's something I must admit, I, when I finish something like that, I sit back and think, yeah, that's something I'm happy with, that's something I like, uh, that's something that I'm proud to have actually have made. So how many versions of this coat do you think you've done? Um, distinct sort of step ups from yes. previous versions mm. maybe about 10 wow um, each each t- each time I, I mean if i have an opportunity to improve upon it i always will i always mm. will look at something and think well that could be made a little bit better next time around and i'll i'll do that i if if i i mean the the fabric i use the the malabar faux mm-hmm. suede fabric that i use it's an absolutely stunning fabric it's got a wonderful weight to it it's not like the cheap paper thin faux suede that you get in a normal fabric shop mm-hmm. it's got a heaviness to it sometimes if you cut a swatch of it and show it to someone some people sometimes think it is suede mm-hmm. they don't think that it's actually made of polyester because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the fabric is 100 percent polyester and it just does not have that man-made fiber feel it's no. got a real quality to it i mean because because you've got one of my coats you sort of know what i'm uh, yeah, about. yeah, completely. I was going to actually ask you about that. I mean, you said this is your favorite material to work with. Absolutely, because um, it's, as I said, it's got a decent weight to it. It's a fabric where there's a lot of the coat. I, I don't do any interfacing in it. I don't do any fusible interfacing on it at all now. Um, and it's never really needed it. It's always been a fabric that's been able to um, stand up on its own and not, and not sag and not um, sort of change its sort of form after you've sewn it it's, it's got a, a decent sort of structure to it mm-hmm. um 
and when you press it, it you can press some quite nice sharp lines into it and it will keep it and then when the coat's finished it's something where when it's um crushed up thrown in the back of a car looking like a piece of rubbish you can shake the coat out put it on and all the creases have gone oh yeah uh, it's a really robust fabric it's amazingly um uh, uh, resilient it's, it really does bounce back from quite harsh use uh and there was a couple of times I've been caught in really heavy rain downpours in London mm-hmm. and got absolutely drenched to the skin. Um, but that coat is just, you just hang it up, dries off, and it's fine. And it's sort of, <laughs> none the sort of worse for wear. So it's an amazingly um, robust fabric. Um, uh, and it's, I've had coats that have last, you know, that I've worn for every day for like a year and whatnot and then they've sort of you know they've been as good as they have been on the on the first day so it's it's it's, it's a really nice fabric so it's, i really do enjoy using it um the color i've got now is the closest i think i'm going to get um to the screen worn coat within reason mm-hmm. uh, right the original sh- fabric has got it's got like this flecking in it which is really difficult to mm. to sort of replicate so um Unless something else comes along, I mean, I'm really happy with this fabric. It really is a nice colour fabric to use. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 re- I, I, I really do like it. Yeah, you started with that lighter uh, brown, which we all thought it was, and then, like, it all gets into that perception of what it seems on screen, what you think it is, what it really is. And then once we finally um, saw the swatches, Louise uh, were so nice to provide, uh, you found that great second color, which is so much closer. And I know I've seen comparisons. Yeah, yeah it's really, really yeah. close. Yeah. And it's one of these things where, um, although, yes, we now have all these fantastic photograph reference material to, to sort of work from, what we also have is Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And before we get to see the latest publicity stills of the series, someone has been messing around with that image in Photoshop. And sometimes you you look at a photograph of David Tennant in the suit and in the coat, and the colour looks completely different from one publicity still to a different one, because they've been sort of changing around some of those colours. In fact, I found a publicity still where there was a, f- a photograph taken of him wearing the blue suit, right? Um, but it wasn't actually the blue suit; it was actually the brown suit recoloured. Mm. Because I found the original publicity still of him wearing the brown suit, and every single he's in exactly the same pose. His hair is exactly the same, down to like you know how many strands of hair he's got hanging down his forehead, and the creases on the jacket are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But they've just color changed it to being the blue suit. So mm-hmm. when you see a publicity still, you even then you can't even be one hundred percent sure that what you're looking at is right. Right. Um. It's only when you start to see slightly more candid photographs or stuff which is like the original pub, the original photo shoot before it had been messed around with can you really start to see what the true colours are. Um, I mean, I was speaking to uh, Louise Page. I mean, she, she was telling me how when they published all these books and CDs of these sort of new stories that have got Rose and David Tennant in them, mm-hmm. They didn't take that many publicity stills of Billy Piper dressed up in, dressed up in the costume as Rose, mm-hmm. but they needed all these different pictures to go on the covers of the books. So they sometimes would take a photograph of her that had been taken for New Earth 
and they'll color change her top from being pink to being green. Hmm. So if you look on some of the books, she's wearing particular costumes that we all know and love, but they're completely the different, completely different colors. They've 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 sort of re retouched them so that when you see all the books on the shelf, there's different pictures, but they're actually sometimes they're the same clothes from the same photo shoot, just a different angle where they've then re retouched them to look completely different. So you can never really trust what you see. <laughs> And she hated it. She 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 said to me, "Oh, Rose Rose would never wear that 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 shade of green. You know, that's 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 not her, that's not her sort of color palette." Mm -hmm. um, and she was she was quite sort of shocked as to how much they would take liberties with the costumes that she had given Rose. Mm -hmm. That uh, they would actually sort of take them and sort of mess around with them to that sort of uh, level. And even with a screen grab, you're also dealing today uh, in today's television anyway with uh, colorists who are Absolutely. always color grading. So you're never really, really sure. And that gets into that classic argument of, are you going to go for that on-screen read of how it's generally perceived, or are you going to go for what it really is, assuming you have said photos, or maybe you're lucky enough, like uh, we've been to see swatches of the original material firsthand. Yeah, yeah. And then the worst thing also is it's so disappointing sometimes to go along to the exhibitions, because although, yes, you can see all the original costumes on display at the exhibitions, they're all displayed in very dull lighting mm. with spotlights of red and green and blue. Mm. So even when you're right in front of it, it's there in front of you, you're not looking at it under a natural base white lights to be able to compare it. And if you then start using flash, that will bleach out the colors as well anyway. So you're almost trying to match stuff at exhibitions is almost worse than trying to match it to photographs because <laughs> because you've got all these red lights looking at things and there's spotlights and flashing lights going on and sometimes they're in really dark corners to make them look moody or whatever. Half the time it's because the costumes aren't really as good as they look on screen. Right. So they're trying to sort of make it so you can't see them as well. So they put lots of sort of dull lighting and sort of different coloured lighting on them. So even when you get in front of them, you still can't get the right colour. <laughs> uh, I mean, the only thing that's good about going to an exhibition is that you can look at something, you can study something a bit more as to how the pattern's been cut or the type of fabric that something's made out mm. of. You realise that, um, that Tom Baker's frock coat from City of Death is like a really coarsely woven tweed. Hmm. It's, not, it's not like a nice smooth... Um, coating fabric that you might think it is actually quite a coarsely woven tweed fabric hmm. um, so there's things like that you, you you never quite pick up on on screen right. or even even in uh, publicity stills it's only when you actually get in front of it that you realise what that type of fabric is mm -hmm. and the, the type of um, sort of raw silk type fabric that the um, the, the jacket that Sylvester McCoy wore right that's 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 quite an interesting fabric as well. It's not uh, it's not quite a suiting fabric that you would you would expect. It's a little bit more plush than that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, again, it's it, it, it's you, you get in front of those costumes, and what you can all, you you can only really take away from that something which is like you know the feel of what that fabric is like, how that coat is cut, if there are some 
seams around the back of the coat that you can now see that you you've never noticed on a publicity still. You never you you never got to see the back of a a coat on TV or whatever. Um, so yeah, there's there's you, you can only draw certain things from even having the costume right in front of you, um, and you do need to fall back sometimes on those really good publicity stills that you've managed to find. And I, I remember listening to one of your previous podcasts where you were trying to get the colour of um, Tom Baker's costume, but you knew the constant of the colour of his scarf. Yes. And you would retouch images so you got the scarf correct and hope that the rest of everything else would fall into place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, sometimes on this new on these new on these new costumes, you haven't even necessarily got that type of constant to be able to work anything out. So yeah, it's it's all it's all fun and games. It's all fun and games. <laughs> I, I know it's uh, I, yeah. You, you try to look for um, the Rosetta Stone of color, you know, like oh, I know this should be this color, or at the very least, I like the read of whether it's the scarf or the tie or something. So if I match this to about where my where I'm happy at least with where this is, then this is the palette I need to aim for. Even if it's not a hundred percent correct, it'll read right. And yeah. that's all you can really do at the end of the day, unless you're lucky enough to, again, have the swatch or the original right in front of you. You can custom die to match, and then you're off to the races. But how many people can do that, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, so, uh, da, 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 da. so you've done, like, a lot of key components for, gosh, what, at least, uh, uh, I'm thinking, like, Five, six doctors now. I'm, I'm losing uh, track. It's about seven. Yeah, um, I've had a, quite an interesting period this year where um, I was making um, a John Pertwee smoking jacket. Oh right. Mm-hmm. I was finishing off um, a Tom Baker frock coat. Mm-hmm. I was cutting someone's Fifth Doctor Peter Davison coat. Mm-hmm. I was preparing my Colin Baker frock coat. I was also making a couple of tweed jackets and I had a talent coat lined up. So I had literally had like seven doctors at various stages of production sort of, uh, sort of going through, sort of going through the process of sort of designing, cutting and making up. So yeah, so it, and that, that, that was quite, that was quite bizarre to realize that I had sort of three, four, five, six, not, uh, 11 and 10. So yes, it was it was sort of quite a list. A literal uh, TARDIS wardrobe. Tell me you got a yeah, photo of yeah. that. That sounds awesome. Actually. Well, they were all very much at very different stages and uh. stuff needed to go out before other stuff was started. So uh, it wasn't really something where it was going to be as definitive as a row of finished costumes. I know, I know. But it still would yeah. have been a neat, neat image. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, so let, let's talk a bit about the 11th Doctor uh, tweed jackets. I mean, that seems to have been the next major... Um, set of commissions that come come on your plate a lot, right? But the Donegal and yeah. the Shetland and the uh, the Peacoat. Yes, yes. I mean, it's really down to uh, Ewan, uh, Ewan Anderson who found um, the tweed in uh, W. Bills. Uh, can't thank him enough for uh, being so diligent and doing his own, his own research there to actually track that down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I would never have really considered making a tweed jacket um, without having the the sort of correct fabric to make it from there's almost sort of no point if you haven't got the right fabric then uh, i'm really such a perfectionist that sometimes if, if i don't have the right fabrics to make something i won't make it mm-hmm. um i've had people sometimes contact me to say oh, would you would, would you make me this would you make me that and i say well i can't get the fabric so i would have to decline um i wouldn't even make something out of something that was 
um, too much of a second best that I would feel that the finish fee wouldn't be worth wearing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that said, I mean, I, I, I am an enormous um, advocate of saying if you can get the look, the cut, the shape, and you can make a costume, then wear it. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with wearing something that's not screen accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, be- j- j- just because I make stuff which is as close as I can get to the real thing, it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that can be worn. If, mm-hmm. you, if you go out and wear a costume, you know, that's been made in China, that's 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 not really up to the up up, up to the job. If you're having fun, what does it matter? Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you if you're out there and you're having a great time, you know, you, you're taking lots of photographs, playing with sonic screwdrivers, you know, jumping around, whatever. It's it's just great fun, um, and that that's that's the main thing about it. Cosplay should always be fun. Mm-hmm. The sort of moment it stops being fun, I don't think there's any point. Um, but I, 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 the, the fun that I have is tracking down those fabrics, trying to get things as 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 spot on as I can. Right. Um, so so yeah. So when it came to the um, Shetland tweed, that sort of came about. I think, oh right, okay. Well, maybe this is now something worth doing. Um, and looking at the jacket, studying it, I suddenly realised that, as I said before, the basic lounge jacket block that I had from this book from 1890 mm-hmm. was 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 the right pattern. Um, there was very little that needed to be changed on it. Um, it was almost as if you could see that the original tailor had taken a pattern almost the same same as that and used that as their basis. Um, so it didn't take me very, it didn't take me long at all to come up with how it was cut, and I always will look at something and think, well, the 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 sort of positioning of the stripes of the fabric sit here. They 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 sit so that there are two wide stripes of the tweed going through the breast pocket, mm-hmm. um, and the way that then comes down to meet just above the the sort of waistline pocket and how the spacing goes around there. Um, I always sort of look at that and try to sort of make that fall into sort of place. But there's always like a, a level of compromise because um, Matt Smith is what, a chest 36, 38 or something like mm. that. And if I'm having to make a jacket that's a chest 42 or 44, it's never going to fall exactly the same. You're mm. always going to have to have extra fabric and extra fabric means extra extra pieces of pattern repeat. So. Mm-hmm. You've always it's always a, a level of compromise trying to come up with something of how to recut a jacket so that it looks like it's the original that's a chest thirty six, but yet it's actually a chest forty four. Mm. Um, and it's 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 tricky sometimes. It's it's quite difficult to to keep it to to keep all of those plates spinning and still come up with something that sort of looks looks right. Um, so so yeah, it's, it's it was an interesting interesting thing that sort of came about and it's been quite a popular um item and it's one of those times when at long last you actually see doctor who having a an actual impact because they purchased five meters of that fabric from um w bills mm-hmm. a couple of years ago uh and now because of doctor who they've had to reweave that fabric twice <laughs> so they've sold two whole bolts 60 meters of that fabric because Doctor Who's come along. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that fabric had sat on their shelf there for about four or five years. It had been there for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
because it has a tag on it when it says when when the fabric was originally woven, mm-hmm. and then they they itemise every time a even like a half half meter is sold. They will tell they write down the date, how much was taken, and who sort of purchased it. Hmm. Um, so you can see this history of the fabric as to, and it, it sat there for years with only like half a meter being sold here, half a meter being sold there. Then suddenly there's five meters sold to angels, mm-hmm. um, and then. A year later, it's found by Ewan, and then the whole roll's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so it then meant that business got pushed up to the the weavers up in Scotland to reweave it again. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those occasions when it has actually had an effect on the weavers that made the original fabric, but they have had to reweave it, and then they've had to reweave it again mm-hmm. because um, because it's been so popular. So it's 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 great that uh, that it's sort of supporting British weavers and industry in sort of that in sort of that regard. Now uh, I I understand the Shetland is generally more popular than the Donegal. Um, generally, um, I do get a lot of requests from people asking about the Donegal. But the irritating thing about the Donegal is that it's hand woven in Ireland mm-hmm. and it's only made from two colours of yarn. Whereas the Shetland tweed is made from six colours, mm. and they can't get the right coloured yarn to reweave the Donegal fabric, mm. um, because there's only two colours in there. If you get one of them slightly wrong, then half of the colour of that fabric is wrong. Mm. Whereas if you get one colour slightly wrong on the on the Shetland tweed, it's only one out of six colours. I see. Do you see what I mean? So it will still look generally correct there are fractional differences in the color between the different weaves of the Shetland tweed because they can't get the yarns again but what hap- what's changed is that going back years they mills would have enormous stocks of yarns mm-hmm. um, that they would just have sitting on shelves and then when someone would order some fabric they'd just take the yarns down and they would then weave it whereas because their margins are so cut and so tight these days they won't hold that type of stock. If they get an order in, they will then go and order the yarn from where they, from their sort of supplier. But often they go to their supplier and find that they don't have the yarn. Mm-hmm. So they've got an order to weave, you know, a couple of hundred meters of a particular fabric, but they can't even get the yarn themselves. Mm. So when um, the Donegal fabric suddenly sold out, W. Bills went back to Donegal to say, "Oh, we, we need to get this fabric restocked." And they couldn't get the right colour of yarn. And if they want to get it dyed, especially, they've got to buy 20 tonnes of, of yarn. Um, they can't just buy a couple of reels of it. It's, it's, they've got to invest enormous amounts of money to get it rewoven. Mm. So that, at the moment, is very much on hold. Um, Donegal want to reweave it. W. Bills want them to reweave it. They want to stock it. They want to sell it. Mm-hmm. Pe- pe- people like myself want to buy it. But because they can't get the yarn... In Ireland, they then can't get it made. So at the moment, the Donegal is like completely unavailable. Um, I did go into W. Bills once, and they had had a test done. They'd done like a, a test reweave of, mm-hmm. of that particular fabric. Mm-hmm. And the there's like a, a dark chocolate, and there's like a lighter um, sort of coffee color in there. Mm-hmm. And the lighter coffee color was, was too light. Um, and it almost looked like a black and white fabric. It was the contrast between the two was just too great. Huh. And you looked at it and thought, no, it is not right. It is just 
not the right colour. Um, mm. So even though they were trying, even though they were coming up with uh, some form of alternative, it was just not worth doing. It would, because it would just be so far out, it's just not even worth bothering. Um, wow. So, yeah, so I get a lot of people asking me, oh, can you make me a Donegal jacket? And I'm thinking, well, I can, but I can't get the fabric. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, I, I'm not really happy making a, a jacket out of something that's not the right fabric. No matter so, how close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no matter how close. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've turned quite a few away like that. Um, so with the, uh, with the Shetland, which actually must present, um, a, as you said, a bit more of a challenge because it has a pattern and you have to be aware of where that pattern's going to lay versus say the Davison coat where yeah. it, it's solid. So you have a lot more to play with there, um, in yeah. terms of sizing. Uh, so that you're right. I didn't even think about that, but that must. It's that, that from my point of view, from what I, the way I've been working, um, it's been this sort of progression of challenges within garments because mm -hmm. the original tenant coat that's all just a plain color right all i had to worry about on that was the pattern mm -hmm. i had to get the pattern correct on that mm -hmm. um and then i had an email out of the blue from a guy called kevin coper right. who had some gap trousers and oh, said yeah. hey how about making me a suit mm -hmm. so i had to make his suit and realized that i had to get the pinstripes to sit as accurately as i could get so mm -hmm. that there was the right number of pinstripes across the breast pocket um, how the little belt, the box pleated pockets done, how the pocket, uh, basically how, how the lapels are set. So I then had to pay attention sort of how the fabric was positioned horizontally across the pattern. Mm -hmm. um, so that gave me a series of challenges, which, which I was able to do. So then when it came to the Shetland Tweed, you've got how the pattern is positioned horizontally but then you've got how the pattern is then positioned vertically. Mm -hmm. Because if you look very closely, that that jacket is so beautifully made mm -hmm. that the horizontal orange stripes, they go across the chest of the jacket and across the sleeve. They absolutely line up. Hmm. They don't. They, there's no sort of step between the two. So you've got to cut everything so that it, it's perfectly aligned vertically. Mm -hmm. um, as well as getting those those bold stripes sitting correctly, uh, sort of horizontally across the pattern as well. So there's 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 quite a few challenges like that. Which if I hadn't had the challenge of doing the the, the tenant suit, I wouldn't have already had the frame of mind to then be able to then pick up the Shetland tweed and be able to do that. But again, I managed to find a really good reference book which teaches you how to lay out a pattern on cloth and put balance points in so that you position the chest piece correctly and then you work out where the balance point is to then go on the sleeve and then you position the sleeve correctly to get that balance point right and then you position the back panels so that again the horizontal stripes go all the way around the jacket so that uh, there's no sort of step or it doesn't sort of jar upon the eye when you actually look at it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's 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 a very difficult jacket to make. It's quite a disciplined jacket to, to do. It's quite a, a sharp, um, more sort of defined line as well. Because I always I think that when when he went from series five to series six, there was a distinct change in his styling. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot somehow. It was a lot looser in series five. Yeah. Um, but when it came to series six, he, he's a little bit more sort of um, 
sort of more quiffed in a way. He's, he's the, the 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 shirts that he wear he wears have these 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 tabbed collars. Mm-hmm. It's more of a dress shirt than a casual shirt. Um, raising it to a three-button um, closure on the jacket rather than just a two-button closure. I think it's a little bit more sort of it's more of a sharper look. It's refined. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. And 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 making that jacket, it's it's quite a it's quite a disciplined jacket to make. You've got to be a little bit more sort of sharper on your lines and on on how it's cut and then how it's assembled. Um, so, it, but it's quite a nice jacket to do when it's finished. It's a really nice. Nice. It's a nice firm jacket to actually wear. Mm-hmm. No, completely. It's uh, as you say, it's deceptive, like a lot of these things. But uh, yeah, uh, fantastic piece when it's done. Um, uh, so uh, the pea coat. Yeah. Now yeah. what? Now what challenges did that present? Um, that wasn't too bad, really. Um, the only challenge, really, on that one, from my point of view, was all those darn pockets on the front mm-hmm. because it's got these two <clears throat> these two horizontal waist pockets and then it's got the two vertical hand warmer pockets as well mm-hmm. um, and it's getting the proportions of those correct and getting the alignment of those correct and getting to then work out how the button closure works um, around those because the sort of buttons need to be positioned to, to sort of line up with the pocket in sort of particular ways. So I mean that that was that was the only real major challenge on that. Finding a really good button was a challenge. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting um, topic uh, because uh, there was a particular company um, in the UK called uh, they, they were called Schwenk. They were based just off of Oxford Street and. They provided buttons to a lot of film, TV, opera, theatre, mm-hmm. and they would stock um, lots and lots of handmade buttons, buttons made out of wood, buttons made out of leather. Um, they would they would source vintage buttons, and they did a lot of lot of interesting stuff. They 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 provided a lot of buttons for the Harry Potter films for. Um, a lot of the sort of costume dramas that were made on the BBC, hmm. and they provided the buttons that were on the the Jackson Lake waistcoat. Ah, now that's that. That's where those buttons came from. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking at the um, the great coat, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's where those military buttons came from. So I went along to to, to Schwenk to see. Oh, okay, let's, let's let's have a look, see what they've got. And I suddenly found that they'd closed down. Mm. Uh, I couldn't believe it. They'd gone. Um, ended up that the guy that, that ran it just basically decided one day he sort of had enough with dealing with customers wanting buttons, <laughs> and he just decided to close down. So I went on a bit of a mission trying to find these buttons elsewhere, and I came across a little shop, bizarre little back street shop that's run by a, an old lady where the shop has got all these racks and racks of shelves with little drawers in them where she keeps all these buttons. And the floor was just covered in buttons. There was just buttons all over the place, just mm-hmm. randomly dropped and left everywhere. And I was showed her some photographs, and she said, oh, I think I can get something that's pretty similar to that. And there was a guy sitting in the corner who was a friend of hers, just sort of been, been chatting. And I looked at him, I thought, I recognise that guy. I can't work out who he was. And then I realised this was the guy that used to run Schwenk. Mm. And I, he goes, oh, what's that you're trying to find? I said, oh, I'm just trying to find this, this particular button. He goes, oh, yes, that was... Uh, that was uh, one of mine. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, 
so you supplied this button yes I supplied that button okay great where can I get them as well I haven't got any of the stock it's all been sold okay so I asked him well, where did you get the buttons from as well I got them from a manufacturer in France brilliant okay right mm. so mm. I'm going to get in touch with them uh, they went out of business a couple of years ago mm. and they were the only people that made this button uh -huh. so after the fact I tracked down the shop that sold them he could tell me the name of the um, manufacturer that made them but all of that all of that chain even though the coat had only just been on screen for the very first time that whole chain had already closed down <laughs> Typical, isn't that Murphy's Absol Law? Yeah, absolutely typical. But the bu the buns I did eventually find. They're a really nice um, brass cast button, um, uh, with a nice sort of antique finish to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they really do sort of make the coat when it's done. Mm -hmm. But in the but as soon as I saw the coat, I looked in. I thought well, that that fabric looks like a moleskin. Um, and through various um, times, I've been looking for fabrics. In fact, when I when I was trying to find a better fabric for the tenant code at one point I did briefly look at moleskins mm -hmm. because I was thinking faux suede maybe like a moleskin something like that and mm -hmm. I found a, a UK manufacturer a mill that, that weaves moleskins in the UK and I had all their swatch cards and as soon as I saw that great coat I thought hmm moleskin hmm dark olive and I looked at my swatch cards that I had and sure enough they had a perfect dark olive moleskin. So it was just a simple case of picking up the phone and saying, oh, I just need five or six metres of this fabric. And I just had it within like a week. Hmm. Um, so that was one of the easiest fabrics to find. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is the most perfect screen match to the one that was used. Mm -hmm. um, I could have got the buttons a bit better if the um, chain of... Uh, uh, sort of chain of supply was still in place mm -hmm. um, but then as I said the pattern I lifted directly from um, a uh, army warm coat which was from my pattern book which was from the, the 1952 edition of that cutter's guide mm -hmm. and the whole thing just came together nice and nice and easy nice and quickly um, it wasn't a particularly difficult one to do um, so yeah so that, that that's, that's uh, quite a nice coat and the pattern I've used has got quite a nice um, flare to the skirt uh, it's it's got some decent sort of shaping to it mm -hmm. uh, which I've seen some replicas that have been done um, elsewhere and they just don't quite have that flare about them which is a bit of a shame they're um, not using UK tailoring no they're not using UK tailoring and they're not using UK fabrics there's quite a lot of them are using like a simple wool almost like a Melton um, felt fabric which it, it isn't I mean mm -hmm. it's you have to think, step back from it a moment and think that that coat is made from moleskin and the UK moleskins are made from 100% cotton. Mm -hmm. So that coat is a cotton coat. Mm -hmm. You don't look at it and think of it as a cotton coat. I mean, normally like a military coat is normally wool. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's completely the wrong fabric to use like a Melton or some form of wool fabric or felt fabric to actually make that coat. Mm -hmm. So it's... it's, it, it's funny sometimes to see some of the replicas that are done and they are made from like a felt uh, instead of a moleskin. Well, it's like uh, a lot of the replicas for the tenant code. I mean, putting aside Faust suede, which I know some do, uh, look at the Abbey shot, which is wool. 
and how different that looks and feels. Yes, um, that was a very yes. I was uh, that, that that was a great shame that um, it could have been so much better. Uh, but yes, it's, it just looks like a camel coat. It just looks like a a very sort of basic coat. It just I, for, for me, it just loses the sort of magic um, that that original tenant coat has. Uh, the way it drapes, the way it flows, um, it just doesn't quite cut it for me. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great shame. I, I did as soon as I knew that the. Um, Abbey Shop were doing that coat. I got my coat on pre-order, and again, I must admit, when it when it arrived, I was a, I was a little bit disappointed with what they'd produced. Well, and I understand it was probably all for economics to bring the price down to where it is, um, which is I mean, understandable. But as you're saying, a bit of a shame that that fabric really kind of does make that coat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now you said that you found your most. <laughs> You said you found your most stressful project the Pertwee smoking jacket. Why is that? Yeah, this is smoking jacket that I made this year. Um, velvet is just the most appalling fabric to have to work with. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. The moment you cut it, well, before you even cut it, you've got to make sure that you've got the pile of the fabric because it's got like a, it's got like a, um, a sort of grain to it. Yep. And you, if you have the fabric the wrong way up, it will reflect light in a different way and it will look a different color. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be so careful that you've got the fabric the same way around and that you've um, cut it the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so before you even cut it, you've, you, you've already got a bit of a nightmare. The moment you cut it, it starts fraying everywhere. There's bits of little sort of bits of sort of um, uh, velvet dust going everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I normally. Um, uh, surge the edge of it. In the UK we call it like an overlocker. You know, you like a serger just to sort of bind the edge so it doesn't fray everywhere. And then when you start sewing it, because of the pile of it, um, you know, if you've got like a rug on a carpet, mm-hmm. it, the, the, the the rug will sometimes slowly move because as you walk on the the rug, the pile of the carpet pushes back and it just lifts it and just moves it like a, a few millimeters every time. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're sewing velvet together. You might start with it lining up at the top, but when you get to the bottom, sometimes if, even if they're the same length, you end up with it like a sort of a centimetre or an inch different at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So sewing it together is a nightmare. And if you've sewn that together and it's gone wrong like that and you unpick it to then re-sew it, it leaves a scar on the fabric. So you can only ever sew um, velvet once. You can't keep taking a seam apart just to adjust it and re-sew it mm. so every stage about working with and then when you press it and then you need to press the seams um you get the um uh the pile gets crushed right and it's very difficult to get that to, to, to bounce back so every stage about making something out of velvet is just an absolute nightmare and it just wasn't fun. I didn't enjoy that jacket at all. <laughs> um, it looks great. It looks fine when it's finished. It looks 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 great, but it just means you've got to be so careful. And even when you press it, I've got what's called um, I've got what's called a needle board. Yes. What, have you ever heard of a needle board? Yes. What it, mm-hmm. what it basically is, it's like a, a, a sort of scaled down version of like a bed of nails, mm-hmm. but they're like these tiny little sort of centimeter long sort of pins and you lay your velvet face down onto this board and the pile of the velvet goes in between the needles Mm -hmm. so that the 
the, the, the backing of the fabric is, is this the back of the fabric that's being supported and when you press you then compress the fabric and you're not crushing the pile of the, mm-hmm. the velvet mm-hmm. um, so and you can only when you press you can only press going up the grain of the fabric so if you're using an iron you can only go from like sort of left to right you can't go left and then go back again mm-hmm. you can only like um, press in one sort of uh, direction so everything about it you've got to be so careful um, and if you do anything like that wrong at any stage um, you end up with something which possibly you then might have to throw away and start again so it's I just just did not enjoy that that really was the most horrendous thing to have to do <laughs> but it's one of these things I think when you start doing it and doing it more and more you 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 understand the fabric and you start to uh, n- sort of uh, respect the fabric and work out how to do it so that you don't make those types of mistakes again. Spoonflower has been a real yes. godsend because you yes. use that for McCoy hankies, uh, the Colin Baker neckties, and the Davison trousers, among others. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it just sounds like where where would you be without, <laughs> without this I actually love that company. Uh-huh. Um I work, the only thing I will say, um, I don't want to knock them because they are they are really great. They, they recently changed their color tables for printing, mm-hmm. um, and supposedly to get stuff to match a lot more closely mm-hmm. to what you get on screen. But I found that certain colors are really difficult to match now. Where well, you used to be able to get a really quite bright red mm-hmm. um, for the you know, Peter Davison hat bands, mm-hmm. you just it's just a little bit more dirty and muted now which is an enormous shame but yes i mean that they're the most fantastic company i really love them you can just upload a a jpeg you just choose your fabric how many meters you want Mm. press buy and within a few weeks you've got some fabric that you can make anything you want out of Mm -hmm. and it's the most brilliant stuff i mean it's when i started using it i suddenly realized there were the you you the old phrase, the possibilities are endless, but certainly there, there was, because what I would sometimes do, I would print up a load of McCoy hankies or whatever, and I'd have a bit of a space on the fabric, and i think, oh, that's a bit of a waste. And I thought, well, well done. I could print some um, some sort of wash care labels. Mm-hmm. Instead of having to like have um, labels made and pay money for them, I can just get them printed on a bit of waste fabric that's just going to end up being the dustbin anyway. Mm-hmm. So I can print little wash care labels or sort of stuff like that so um as soon as you start thinking about it you realize how you can do it and then um i also use it a lot for making shirts right Uh, but i then thought a little bit outside the box in that what i did was i devised my pattern for a shirt i put it onto my computer in illustrator so i've got like a sort of vector graphic of all the different pieces that make the shirt up. Mm-hmm. I then exported that to Photoshop and added in the, the the fabric pattern for, say, the Utah shirt, and then I print it. Uh, so what I then end up doing is I get back from Spoonflower a big bit of fabric that's got all the different shapes and patterns needed for the shirt with the pattern already printed on it. So instead of having like great yardage of blank fabric and then having to get my pattern out lay it out on the fabric to try to work out how to fit it best on the fabric and then cut it out. Mm-hmm. All of that cutter guide is already on the fabric for me. So I've already laid it out hmm. the most efficient way possible. And sometimes where 
there's a space down the side where you could fit a collar, but the stripes would be going the wrong way. Well, I just turn to, turn the artwork around so the stripes go the, the, the sort of way that I want them. Mm-hmm. And you end up using the fabric more efficiently. It speeds the process up enormously because you literally, as soon as you get the fabric, you can start cutting out the shirt. You haven't got to get out, oh, what's my pattern for a, for a, for a medium shirt? Or no, 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 that's, that's the one for the large. I need to get the right pattern out. So it's already on there. I just order up my fabric for a shirt in large Utah shirt. Mm-hmm. The fabric turns up and I just cut it out and straight, straight away starts sort of making the shirt up. Hmm. And I can put my little balance points on there as well as part of the artwork. Um, it's 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 an enormously efficient way of doing it, and I wouldn't be able to do that really without Spoonflower being the way they are. So they are absolutely absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, yes, you can. Um, it, when it came to the Peter Davison trousers, um, mm-hmm. up to that point, um, people have been using fabric that fabric that had been used for say deck chairs and stuff like that. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. they'd found sort of um, fabric. It was, it was good it was it had stripes on it but it wasn't exactly the right configuration of colors and whips and how it should be oh yeah screen accurate so mm-hmm. it was a easy job just to find some really good photographic reference material work out the stripes work out a pattern repeat and as you say you just you just you just go on the website upload the jpeg click and purchase and away you go mm-hmm. and you end up with um absolutely perfect fabric and i noticed um when I did my season twenty twenty one trousers, mm-hmm. um, that there's a bit of the background where I thought it was just all like this sort of cream colour background with orange stripes and black stripes, but between the black stripe and the orange stripe, it ends up that it's actually white. <laughs> so I've gone back and updated my artwork, uh-huh. um, which if I'd gone to the trouble of getting like a um, a mill to weave it, oh. no, uh, but hundreds of meters of fabric and I can't use any of it because you know this stripe's not quite right but you can go back with Spoonflower and just you know change sort of change what you need true uh, which which is great uh, so you so say yeah I absolutely love them I there's hardly like a couple of months go by that I'm not placing an order yeah they, I mean just a godsend for cosplayers because yeah now uh, you can basically recreate a lot of these hard to do fabrics or hard to find fabrics as long as you can reasonably uh, get a good screenshot or as you say recreate from photo references in Photoshop uh, or Illustrator um, really the only limitation is the fact that they only print on various cottons so I mean if it's got to yes, be a different type of fabric the, yes that's the only limit I mean you can't print a tartan or something which has a woven pattern in it mm-hmm. uh, that's really not going to work as well um, and as you say yes they can only print on cotton because they need to print on fabrics where the inks that they use will soak into the fabric and actually bind with the yarn of the fabric itself mm-hmm. um, they can't print on to man-made fibers because those will tend to it will be like um, trying to paint onto glass with mm-hmm. like a watercolor you just it will just sit on the fabric and not not soak in so it, it doesn't dry quick enough so they then they, they can't use that so yes there are limits so they they've got some various fabrics out there which are like are like silks but mm-hmm. they're not actually silk they're actually like a sort of very um, cut cotton mm-hmm. which can be quite handy if you, if you want to do some form of fancy lining inside a jacket and have so, so, say like you know in the second world war um, pilots would have maps printed inside their flight jackets mm-hmm. so that uh, if they if they 
if they had to ditch over enemy territory, they would have a map to be able to work out where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you could print stuff like that. Yeah, that. That would be the most... If you had some character in Doctor Who who had a, a coat that had a pattern printed inside like that, mm-hmm. as long as you could come up with a pattern, you, 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 you could do that now. You could just literally just sort of design it, artwork it, print it, and get it back as like a lining fabric, which is absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, it's literally just, just having um, the right garment to suit that job. Uh, but as I say, w- when you come to print certain types of fabric, like like woven walls and tweeds, it's just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. it, it does have its limits. It, 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 there, there are things that it can't quite match or achieve but it's it's still an enormously good uh, resource absolutely absolutely uh speaking of resources um aside from what we've spoken about with the pattern books what else do you recommend that people look into for those who are uh just dipping into uh tailoring um it's really down to what sort of level you are starting at and what sort of level you want to get to um i mean when i started i mean uh, I was self-taught, but I had absolutely no idea about how to cut a pattern or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it's always a good idea to start with an existing pattern. Um, and the pattern books I've been talking about, where you draw them up from scratch, they're great, but you've got to understand how to actually understand the language that they're talking and how to use those measurements and how to create that pattern. So it's a good idea to start with using commercial patterns that you can see close to what you want to achieve that will just need a little bit of adaption here, a little bit of change there. Mm-hmm. One of the best books that I bought um, was a book produced by Singer where um, it showed you how to tailor a jacket but it showed you how to do exactly the same thing in three different parallel techniques. Hmm. One was really basic where you did everything on the machine you used fusible interfacings and it was the most basic way of doing it. The second was using a lot of machine work, a bit of handwork, um, some some fusible interface and a little bit of um, uh, sort of flat interfacing. And then the third version was the version where you use no fusible interfacing at all. There's a lot of hand stitching and there's just like a bit of machine work to sort of pull the main seams together. So it talked to you, telling you how to do exactly the same thing at three different levels of skill. And that was an enormously useful book because sometimes you'd look at it and you think, well, okay, well, I'm quite sort of proficient at making a sleeve or making a pocket, but I'm not really good at doing a collar. So you could use, you could pick and choose as to which piece of these instructions you could use to sort of make something a little bit more sort of involved or just do something a little bit more basic that you'd be in control of what's going on rather than it being in control of you. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a really good book. And in fact, quite early on in my blogs, I, I, I did sort of post quite a few times about that book. Hmm. Um, but it's available in the UK and in the US and uh, it's just got a slightly different... They just re skinned it they just put a different cover on it for the uk but i I, the last time i looked it's still quite widely available on um uh on amazon so i'll 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 drop you a link bob if you want and you can maybe add that to your website yeah uh, mm -hmm. as as part of this podcast but that but that was a really good book um because it was also something where when i went back to do things second time around 
I think, well, actually, maybe I won't do it that basic way. Maybe I'll just step up a bit, mm-hmm. do it like a little bit more complex. But so but that, but that was really good to be able to do it all in one book, rather than have to have loads of different reference books all telling you different things. Mm-hmm. This one book was 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 really helpful. So that that that's that's always a really good start. And the other thing is just to sort of go out there, just buy cheap fabrics and just have a go. And all, but one big tip, one big tip I will always say, which um, I learned to my cost. And if you're to start learn from my mistakes is always make a test garment first don't think oh, I'm really excited I really want to make this coat really want to make this jacket I've got the perfect fabric to make it I just want to get in there and start cutting fabric just step back a bit have, check your pattern out make something out of calico something that my tutor said at, at college just use an old sheet an old bed sheet that you, that you don't use anymore just use some bits of old fabric just put it together. Just make sure that it fits because sometimes you think it's going to fit and you put the jacket on, you suddenly find that it's two inches too short around your chest or it's it's enormous and it's not really worked out how you thought. So get your pattern correct first. Do it in a test form. Just work out how to make it and then start cutting your fabric that you purchase mm-hmm. because the, the worst thing to do is to start cutting some fabric that's cost you a little bit more than you expected to pay for it and then you find that the very first thing you cut was was wrong uh, i've done that enough times that i look back i've been making something um very early on i've been making something and looked at it and thought actually that very first bit of fabric i cut that very first panel was the one bit that was wrong and i should have paid attention to that so i'd always make a test garment it slows you down but in the end it speeds you up um so I would always, always make some form of test. And even now, even when I'm doing um, uh, tweed jackets or I'm doing um, Colin Baker frock coats, Tom Baker coats, I will always make some form of calico test. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be fully worked. It doesn't have to be lined. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have the pockets properly made unless it's some particular type of pocket that you've never made before and you, you maybe you need a little bit of practice just to make sure you understand how it's going to work mm-hmm. um, but just just block in the basic chest shape if it's a long coat you don't even need to make it the full length you can mm-hmm. just make it just just waist length and just worry about how long it's going to be later but it's just getting that 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 fit around the body making sure that it it's not tight across the shoulders that it's that this, the armholes are going to be big enough that they're not sort of really sort of sort of biting you under the arm um it's just worth making that effort just just to make some form of test before you start actually making your real garment totally um would you consider that your top bit of advice for beginners absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely um just have a go but do do start with just making a test gum particularly if you're not 100 percent proficient if you're if you're not 100 percent sure about what you're doing then it's always a really, really good idea to make um, a test. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even when, I, as I said, even when I'm, I'm making stuff, if I'm making something that's going to be the same as something I've already made, but in a different fabric, sometimes I will still make a, a garment test just to double check my pattern mm-hmm. um, before even cutting it. Because I mean, I'm, I'm going to be making a frock coat fairly soon, um, which is the the new one that Matt Smith's been wearing, mm-hmm. uh, and that fabric is so expensive oh yeah 
Um, I don't know. I, I didn't listen to the one with with Ewan, but did did, did he touch on that fabric? Um, well, the, well, the first one with Ewan, we just covered the series five costume. I did one with him right. and Steven. I've yet to post that so covers series six, and we touch on it. But uh, we we've talked about it, and, I, and I'm very well aware of how pricey that fabric is. So even I'd yeah. be scared to approach that thing. Yeah. So I mean, I, I purchased enough fabric to make a frock coat, um, which I do plan to do at some point fairly soon. But I tell you, I'm going to be making a, a calico test before I cut any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three hundred pounds a meter is not something you really want to be making a mistake with. So yeah. So always spend a bit of just just an extra day just just making yourself a test because mm-hmm. then you'll just find out little quirks about your pattern that you didn't quite think of to start with that you'll realize will be worth making changes on and then will make your proper garment fit a lot better, look a lot better, drape a lot better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Man, and I thought the Shetland and Donegal was expensive. Uh-uh, <laughs> not compared to that. Um, so, uh, stepping back to the experience of wearing costume, cause I mean, you've worn, you know, a 10 costume an 11th doctor costume, fourth doctor costume, uh, ninth doctor costume, uh, Rory Williams costume at various, yeah. uh, conventions. So what, what's been your, your favorite experience in costume? Well, um, my favorite uh, to, to date really has been going to uh, Chicago TARDIS last year. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I went along to that with a good half dozen costumes, mm-hmm. really specific costume changes, and I literally sort of thought, okay, right, I'm going to go down to go down to the convention. I'm going to be wearing this costume, and then at eleven o'clock, I'm going to change into that costume. And I went through like all of these costume changes throughout the day, and there were various people who were like. I just kept on bumping into the same person like over and over again mm-hmm. and this, this particular guy would go oh, you're wearing another costume how many costumes have you got uh-huh. there might be like another one to come mm-hmm. um, but that was really fun and that was that was that was that was really dressing up and having a really good time um, I've worn quite a few different costumes at Gallifrey but Gallifrey is quite a different convention for me because it's catching up with a lot of people that I know and mm-hmm. um so I spend a lot of time at those that uh, Gallifrey, just 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 talking to people, just having an enormous fun time, just catching up with people that I've seen on DW cosplay. That I've seen them working on various costumes. There was a girl there a couple of years ago who made a replica of um, a femme version of the Colin Baker coat. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and I'd seen it online, and I was kind of hoping she'd be at um, Gallifrey, and she was. And I got to sort of see her costume. And I'm looking at it thinking, she's done such a good job. She's every single panel of that coat is represented somewhere on her femme costume. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. And I absolutely loved it. So it was really cool just to sort of see some of these people and actually sort of catch up with them and speak to them. But there were, I didn't know as many people at, at uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So um, I concentrated much more on the costume side of that. I really went along with the intention of dressing up and just having a really good time sort of just, just walking around in my costumes. So that, that, that was enormous fun. And at that point I'd actually gathered enough costumes to really make enough costume changes sort of, so that people would actually notice. <laughs> uh, the first, the first time I went to galley, I really just had my tenant coat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really it. I mm-hmm. really, um, 
it was such a last minute thing mm-hmm. going to Gallifrey that year. So um, uh, I really didn't bother to assemble much of um, a range of costumes. There were just a few things that I took along um, that I had. So it wasn't as planned as I did with Chicago. Um, so so uh, Chicago was enormous fun. Um, plus, I sort of won an award for one of my costumes there, which was which was really great. So oh, it, yeah. was, it was it was it was it was an enormously fun convention to go to. Now, uh, so your best experience was at Chicago, but you would consider your favorite convention event Gallifrey. Yeah, I I, I, um, I really do enjoy networking with people, um, catching up with friends that I've been that I chat to online a lot. So I see much. I see Gallifrey as much more of a social event. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to Gallifrey twice now, and I've seen a few of the panels. I haven't been to any of the, like the signings or photograph sessions or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just haven't had time. I've just been spending so much time um, catching up and speaking to people. And people come up to me and realize who I am and ask me about the blog, and they say, "Oh, I've, I've done this. I've done that," and it was all because of your blog, and it, which is really nice things to happen hmm. there was a guy who came up to me um and he was wearing um a swirly tie the you know the um magnolia tie right no he wasn't wearing a magnolia one he was wearing one he'd made himself ah. he's got a brown tie um he'd got some sort of sort of uh, metallic blue um uh craft paint mm-hmm. and he painted his own one hmm. and he had used reference photographs that he had found on my blog to be able to do it so he had created this tie, and he was basically saying, "Oh, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have made this tie." And I was like, "Oh, wow, <laughs> that's 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 like that's like, that's really cool." Um, so yeah, so it's really cool to catch up with people like that. Um, so yeah, I really do enjoy Gallifrey in sort of that regard. I don't really see it as a convention I go to um, to attend uh, interviews and do photographs and signing sessions stuff like that. It really is purely a, a social thing. So. That, that's, I think that's why I enjoy that one most. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Ever, especially since I started cosplaying, Gallifrey has been a great way to hang with friends. And you're right, the social aspect is what makes it the most fun. I still find some time for signings and photographs because, of course, this is my main shot to meet these Doctor Who actors. So yeah. I have to squeeze it in somewhere. But yes, it is predominantly the social aspect. And I, and I do love that and hanging out with friends, both local and out of state and out of country, uh, yeah. like yourself. That yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, I went, to, I went to Gallifrey the first time because um, Kevin Coper had commissioned me to make the ultimate talent suit. Right. And um, that was such an amazing project to have done. It was, um, it was such an honor, really, to have had the chance to take the gap trousers like that and go through the whole process of taking them apart, documenting how I then created the pattern, how the suit was cut, how that came together and how that then produced the finished wearable costume. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I packed it up and posted it off, it was almost like, so it was almost like posting off one of my children and not being able to see them again ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just almost followed the suits over at the last minute it was literally on the i decided on the monday that i was going to go i bought my airline ticket on the tuesday or wednesday and i flew out on the friday mm. it was literally that last minute i had no intention of going up until that point and then just suddenly decided i got to go so i went over to gallifrey that year had a great time and i wouldn't have gone back the second year possibly because it's a long way to go just for a convention but 
I decided to go back because I wanted to catch up with all those people that I'd met mm-hmm. um, the previous year. Um, people like yourself, you know, you and um, everyone else. It was really cool to meet up with everyone, have a good old chat, have a chinwag about costumes. Um, and I want to go back again and have a chance to sort of meet everyone again. So that's why I went the second year and I'm hopefully going again this, this coming year. So, um, but it's all down to meeting the people rather than going to the actual convention. I, I do find it interesting that you, you pick Gallifrey, a U.S. convention, over all the events that are going now in the U.K., like the official Doctor Who convention. Um, yeah, the official convention was enormous fun. Um, it was a little bit more clinical in that you, everyone went in and you, everyone had to go through into this particular room to see this interview, and then we were all ushered out because the next bunch of people were coming in after us, and then we had to go into the next room to see a demonstration of special effects. Okay, great. And then we had to go on to here, then we had to go on to there. So it was it was very, um, uh, it was very structured in how it was run. It was enormously um, well run. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, it, it did not run late. It was it ran absolutely to time. Um, nothing really went wrong that I saw. It was the most planned event um, that I think I've ever been along to, um, and it was it was it was good. It was great to see you know the cast. It was great to have my photograph taken with Matt Smith and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it it did lack that sort of human quality about it, hmm. which I think some of the fan-organized events, particularly even, even the ones in the UK, um, those are, those I think have a little bit more soul to them. Um, but in the UK, they're, they're, they're very, very desperately situated. Sometimes you'd have a convention down in, down in Portsmouth or something, there'd be a convention up in Newcastle or there'd be one over in, over, over, over in Birmingham or somewhere like that. So they're, they're, they're quite, sort of geographically quite, quite far apart. Um, so, these guys that do go to all of these conventions, um, they're, they're very well travelled by, by, by the end of the year because they're literally all over the place. So, I mean, I, I, am, I do tend to stick to the ones that are more London-based um, or I will go to ones which, um, if I think there's something I particularly want to go and see that's taking place, maybe in Norwich or somewhere like that, I might sort of go along. I'm going to, um, there's a convention called Midnight, which is taking place in Birmingham, in December, and it's mm. going to be the first time that Billy Piper's going to a convention. Interesting. And it's going to be her with David Tennant as well. Wow. So, yeah, so it's the pair of them together. So, well, that's worth going to. So I've made the effort to go to that one. Mm. And then I've got, then the next convention I'm going to is in January, which is a thing called Project Motormouth, because sadly, um, uh, Janet Fielding has been diagnosed recently with cancer. Yeah. So they're doing this convention to sort of raise her spirits and raise some. Uh, raise some uh, charity money as well, and they're getting along quite a few of the doctors. There's, they're getting along. Uh, I think it's um, Colin Baker, Peter Davison's Weston McCoy, um, Paul McGann, and David Tennant's going to that one as well. Mm. Um, so all they really need to get along there, they've only really got to get uh, Tom Baker, Christopher Rexton, which will never happen, know. and Matt Smith, and they'll have the lot. So it's, that, that's that's going to be quite a fun convention. Mm-hmm. And then the very next month in February, I'm going to going to Gallifrey. So December, January, February, it's going to be quite a busy sort of convention run for me, which should be quite unusual. Do you have a, a worst or mishap experience in costume? Um, well, 
in that respect, yeah, there, there was one particular incident. It was when it was the first convention I attended um, when I'd made a tenant coat. And a friend of mine had a spare ticket for a big Star Wars convention, mm-hmm. Star Wars um, Celebration Europe. Okay. It took place at the XL Center uh, a few years back. Because um, I think they'd had these conventions in the States quite often. I think there'd been one in Europe somewhere else, but they'd, they'd come to London for the first time. So I thought, oh, I'll just go along, I'll wear my tenant coat, tenant suit, and I'll just have a good time. So um, as with all these conventions, 70% of this thing was just stalls with um, uh, people trying to sell you things. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking up and down these, these the aisles of all these stalls, and there's a guy there who was selling all sorts of leather-based goods. It was all sorts of... Um, holsters and harnesses and buckles and all that sort of stuff and i'm walking down this this aisle and he leapt out in front of me goes hey i really like your coat and i've been oh okay thank you he goes where did you get that coat he goes oh i saw i I made it oh it's fantastic it's brilliant i really love that coat oh look it goes turn around let let me see the back let me see the back oh wow and he was like he was just like going on about it I was like, oh this is nice he's mm-hmm. like going on like, this is really cool and he, and he goes oh brilliant oh, I just love it and he goes, goes to me what? so what's that from Firefly uh. no <laughs> I'm the doctor you know, oh. so yeah so that was a bit disappointing <laughs> I was like really liking my tenant coat and he was thinking something completely different well at least you made him happy <laughs> yeah I did yeah yeah <laughs> What um, what do you feel is the most important thing you've learned doing this? Well, to be honest, it's keeping keeping the whole thing fun. Because if you if you're not enjoying doing something, I really I honestly don't think there's any point in doing it. Because if if, if you if you're going to make a costume, um, make something you can enjoy making. Mm. Uh, make something you enjoy wearing, um, and then just go out and just 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 enjoy it. Um, a lot of people sometimes will. will really go into the minutiae of oh that's not the right fabric or that's that that's 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 not the right um costume or whatever but if it, if it's if it looks right if it feels right if it makes you feel good then then what the hell just 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 go for it just 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 have fun and it, the, the moment it stops being fun that 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 for me is the sort of moment the whole thing's over mm-hmm. uh, but uh yeah i mean but i've been able to keep it fun for quite a while and I really do enjoy tailoring stuff and I really do enjoy when I finish something putting on a mannequin stepping back looking and thinking yeah that's 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 pressing some buttons for me um so yeah it's it's it's, it's just keeping it fun keeping it like enjoying it and just 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 go out there and just just having a good time I mean I love seeing these photographs that you see people post on Facebook where they're in a group, everyone's like got their sonic screwdrivers. You know, everyone, everyone's dressed as Matt Smith. Everyone's dressed as Amy Pond, but they're all just having fun. They're all just got smiles on their face and they're having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the costume. It's the photographs where people just don't look like they're having fun. I think, oh, what's the point? Come mm-hmm. on, guys, <laughs> lighten up. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's just 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 have a good time. That's what cosplay's about. It's play, cos costume play, and play should be fun. Completely agreed. Uh, actually, you know, something I meant to ask you, um, you know, you've done so much costuming for, for Doctor Who and the Doctor. Have you done any costuming for women or non-Doctor Who costuming? Um, 
yes. Um, I've had a number of women contact me, ask me to make them tenant coats, hmm. which isn't a problem because mm-hmm. the, the coat is worn open, it hangs loose, it just needs to be the right sort of size um, lengthwise, get the sleeves the right length, just make sure it's the right girth. It's fine. Um, so that's that's okay. Um, I have been approached by a couple of people who say, would you make me a femme version of the Matt Smith costume? To be honest, that's not really something that um, I'm interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's, it's, it's the keeping it fun part. Um, it would be interesting to do it, but it's not really something that's on my radar at the moment. And I think there's people out there who do it better than me, so I just don't see the point in trying to do something where other people are doing it way better than than, than I could possibly do. Mm-hmm. But I do have um, a commission open at the moment. I'm making um, a replica of the Romana um, uh, Destiny, the Daleks costume. Nice. The, the pink frock coat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I not long ago had access to the original Romana coat, which was what I traced, did a proper pattern trace from. And that was what I used as a basis to create my uh, Tom Baker coat. Um, but what it's, what it's meant was I've now gone back to that original pattern and I'm working that pattern out as a proper um, uh, female costume. Mm-hmm. And I'm making the pantaloons as well. But what I was able to do was the, um, the, the guys that owned the coat at the time, they, they, they let me snip a very tiny piece of, um, of waist uh, seam allowance out of the trousers. So I got a little swatch of the pink fabric mm-hmm. and um, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a company in the UK that I use for dyeing wool fabrics and they've been able to match the, the weave and the colour forming. They've, got, they've been able to produce almost perfect recreation of this pink fabric. Mm-hmm. So I'm just in the process of doing, well actually the stage we're at at the moment is that we've done a calico test which has been posted out to the client. Um, they've worn it, checked it for size and fit, and we're now looking forward to moving that onto actually cutting the proper pattern for that. So that's that's something that I'm working on at the moment, and that that one's going to be enormous fun. I'm, gonna, I'm 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 looking forward to making that, particularly after having made a Tom Baker coat because I've worked out the, the construction method that's best used to be able to make that coat. So working on um, the uh, the sort of uh, sort of spoof version that uh, Lala Ward wore of in Destiny of the Darks is going to be enormous fun. So I'm uh, looking forward to doing that. And that's where we lose the signal for this episode. So come on back next time for part three of three of my in-depth chat with Mr. Steve Ricks, where we conclude our discussion. Next up will be an interview with Nicole Carlson about Femme Doctor cosplay and the Fifth Doctor in particular, and our countdown to Gallifrey One. So hope you'll be there to check it out. If you have any other ideas or questions or suggestions, just go to CostumeStationZero.com and I'll be happy to answer. Anyway, this is Bob Mitch signing off for Costume Station Zero. Thank you.